You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. We exist to spread a passion for the glory of Jesus in Port Austin and beyond. That's our, our mission statement. But I've asked this question, how are people going to see the glory of Jesus? Okay, how do you see a God who is invisible? Where will people in Port Austin and Huron County go to see God? Now, obviously, we have his revelation in general, which is creation. That's called general revelation. We have his special revelation in the scriptures and in Christ himself. Um, but, but where do people go to kind of see a glimpse of, of this God that we want to spread a passion for? And the answer is, this may shock you, but the answer is they should be able to come and look at our church and see, sometimes a dimly lit, but see a picture of God. Stay with me for a minute. If you're like, I don't know about that. Do you remember Philip's request in John 14? He said this to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. He's like, we just, Jesus, would you just show us the father? It would just be awesome. You just give us a little glimpse of the father. And, and I'm sure he was kind of smirking. Like if you saw the father right now, like you would die. But not only that, Philip, I've been with you this whole time. Look at what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's because Jesus is God. He's the image of the invisible God. If you see Jesus, you see God, which is why I'm always telling you, if you want to know how God would react in a specific situation in your life, go through the Gospels and find a situation and look how Jesus reacts, and that's how God reacts. It's incredible to think about. How how God would respond to you is how Jesus responded to people. It's an amazing thing. When you see Jesus, you see God, but what does that have to do with our church? Well, a lot, actually, because the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. And the individuals that make up the church are referred to as members of Christ's body. Which, side note, that's why I make a big deal about membership here. Because you're committing, you're becoming one of his body. You're one of the members that make up the body. In summary, together, this church is supposed to be a physical expression of Jesus in Port Austin. So weighty calling. Empowered by the spirit of the risen Christ, we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this area. Mark Dever explains it this way. It is in the church that God's spirit, the spirit of Jesus, rules and reigns and is made visible in the lives of love that we live. God intends, listen to this, God intends to display his glory through the local church today. As Christians live together in patience, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love. He summarizes it this way. We reflect God's own character by the character of our congregation's life. So go go back to that original question. Where should people in Port Austin go? Where should people in Huron County go if they want to see God? Well, one place they ought to be able to go is to Mercy Hill Church. And yes, dimly lit at times, but yes, they ought to see a glimpse of God working in our midst. They should be able to come here and see God. And I know, look around, right? Us? Us? (laughs) Right? Like this ragtag band of broken sinners. And yes, I'm including myself in that mix. Us? Like we're, we're supposed to display God's glory. How in the world are we supposed to do that? But if you look at God's track record throughout history, that's just the way he does it, isn't it? He calls, he calls Israel, this tiny little nation, 
And he says, I'm going to choose you of all the nations of the world. I'm going to choose you and use you to display my glory to the nations. And then you fast forward in their history and he uses this little shepherd boy to kill a giant to become their king. I mean, he's always been using weakness to display his strength. We get to the New Testament. He uses a baby in a manger to bring hope to the world. I mean, the most weak and feeble thing that you can imagine, a little infant child, is God incarnate. And that's going to bring salvation to the whole world. We fast forward a little bit, and what does he do with a little boy's lunch? Right? Some fish sticks and some biscuits. He feeds 5,000 men plus their wives and children. He loves to use small things to display his glory. Fast forward to the climax of it all, the cross. He uses this instrument of torture and death, and honestly, a torture of humiliation and mocking. And he uses that to bring about his plan for saving the world, the cross of Jesus Christ. All throughout it, Paul says it in Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are awesome. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God uses the small things, the weak things, the the things that the world would say are foolish to reveal his glory and his power. And so now he's called us, this little church in Port Austin, to display his glory to the world around us. We are God's vehicle for bringing Christ to the world. Do you understand that? Now, thankfully, not just us, right? We're part of a network of a lot of different churches and any church that is faithful to the word of God and preaches the gospel is is part of his calling. It's not all on us, but in this area, God has called us to do that. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. And this begins with the lives that we live. We need to understand this. It's not just the things that we do. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, the emphasis is on character more than on your competencies, more than on your ability to do certain things. It's the type of person that you are. And so the way we reflect God's glory begins with the character of our congregation. And that's what this passage is all about today in Hebrews. As we come to this final chapter, the preacher is just going to wrap up his sermon. We believe this is a sermon. Um, So if you think I preach long, I mean, Hebrews, that's a a sermon right there. I mean, one sermon. We've taken 30 sermons on it. That's a big, that's a lot of material that he packed in there. But, But it's a sermon and he's wrapping it up with this kind of rapid fire list of exhortations that he wants to leave this church. These shouldn't be thought of as an exhaustive list for what the church should do or how the church should act, but it's just a helpful overview of the marks of a new covenant community. That's what the church is. Israel was the old covenant community. The church is the new covenant community. And there's close to 15 different commands in this passage, and we're going to take them all today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You're like, no, you can't do that. you, You tried that before. It doesn't work very well, okay? What I've done with these commands is I've grouped them into six big categories. They're not perfect, but they'll kind of help us get through them. And we're going to take three this time and three next time. So you can breathe. That food will be there. We'll be fine. All right. But before we jump into these, I do want to remind you of the background of this book, because we can't jump into a list like this without remembering what he's taught us throughout this book. And the reason why is because the human heart, we are so, so it's so easy for us to fall on what the trap of what we call moralism where we just want to check our boxes and be good and not be bad and just like do this and not do that. We love lists um, and we love to just do things on our own strength. And so what, what can be easy is we can take a list like this and we can just say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And then when you fail, oh man, I messed up. And what we need to remember is that these things flow out of and are empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole book is about. We need to understand at the forefront that we were rebels of God. Guilty before him, on a path to destruction. That was us. 
And that may be some in this room if you're not a Christian today. And I want to invite you to flee from that destruction and come to Jesus today. But in Jesus, God has made a way of escape. He sent Jesus as the greater sacrifice, as we saw in this book, who brought about a greater covenant than the one he made with Israel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again to reconcile us to God. He then ascended back to heaven. And do you remember what he did next? He sat down. And the the author of Hebrews loves to emphasize that in his book. Why? Because he sat down indicating that his work is done. The job is accomplished. It is finished. There is nothing left to do. And so as we go through this list of exhortations, what I don't want you to do is say, if I'll do these things, God will love me more. Or this will make me a better person. Or I'll be a better Christian. Or maybe I'll get more grace from God. That's not how it works. We, we do not earn favor from God. We do not earn his love. How amazing is it that every single day that you wake up, God loves you and there are new morning mercies there. And he loves you because he loves you, not because you're a good person. Because otherwise we'd all be in trouble. And so we can't look at this list and say, okay, I'm going to try to do this so that God will love me. No, no, no. We look at the cross and we say, God has already displayed his love perfectly at the cross. He's made me his own. The job is finished. There's nothing left to do. But now in light of that, this gospel, this good news, this glorious good news now is going to change the way that I live. I want to live different because of what God has done. And it's not to earn his favor. He already loves me as his child. It's because God God has called me to this. And this this gospel promise, this glorious gospel promise, always results in changed living. It always does. In the Bible, you will not see a Christian who, who who is not a Christian, becomes a Christian, and then they go back to their old way of living. That's just not a category in the Bible. The gospel changes us from the heart level. And we, we, we live to God in obedience out of our love for him. And not to try to earn his love. And so that's been really a a summary. And so to kind of summarize this again, these commands, as we look at them, these commands, they flow out of, and they are empowered by the gospel. You've got to keep the gospel at the forefront of your Christian life. All right. But that being said, with that background in mind, let's look. The first three commands are found in verses one through three, and I've summarized them this way. Pursue love. Pursue love. So look at verse one. He says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This would have been a good day for table talk. You're like, I've got questions about that, right? Uh, Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And so you can see why I call this section Pursue Love. These first three commands all focus on loving others. He begins by challenging the congregation to continue in their love for one another. Love is a fulfillment of the law. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is the the distinguishing characteristic of those who claim to know God. What did Jesus say? By your love one to another will all men know that you're my disciples. And so love is so foundational in the Christian life. So do you love your fellow church members? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? Do you put others' interests before your own? Do you seek to love? Listen to this. Do you seek to love more than you seek to be loved? See, in our culture, it's all about seek to be loved. But there's actually more fulfillment in loving. Jesus taught that. And it's not bad to want to be loved. We're wired that way. But if we seek that more, it can quickly turn into an idol and we can demand it and we can become twisted. And so we want to seek to love more than we seek to be loved. Why? Because we're loved infinitely by our creator. So he says that that we should be a church. This church should be marked by this family love for one another. He calls them 
brotherly love. Brothers and sisters um, should love one another like that. And the scriptures do prioritize the relationship between believers. In fact, in Galatians, it says, do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. And so there is an emphasis there. But notice right after this, we also see this command to love those outside the church. And this is seen in the command to show hospitality to strangers. In the Greek, it says this, brother love continue, stranger love do not neglect. They're, they're kind of connected in the Greek. And so it's a cool little phrasing. And what this means is to show kindness and welcoming to strangers. That includes opening up our homes and our lives to them, providing needs. This was essential back then because back then um, it was very dangerous, dangerous to travel. Um, that was not a thing you just did for fun on the weekend. That was like, okay, we got to get a group together and we've got to get some, some weapons because we might get ambushed. And so it was a scary thing to travel back then. And they didn't have Hotels.com. And so it was really nice for them to go into an area and have people open up their homes and let them stay and let their cattle stay for the night. And, and what he says here is really interesting. He pulls from the Old Testament. This happened to Abraham and Lot. And he says, you never know when you're nice to a stranger you might just be helping out an angel. And I'm sure you all have millions of questions there. And, and I've got some crazy stories I could tell. It's not Bible, but I'm just saying there's some cool stories I could tell you. But not today. We'll have to get into those another time. But what, his point is this. You really never know who you are helping when you help them. And God has placed them in your path for a reason. And so help them. And so obviously this looks a little bit different in our culture. But are you someone that seeks to help those that God puts in your, in your path? When you see a need, do you try to meet it? Do you try to open up your home and your life to people? Are you, are you welcoming? When, when visitors come into our church, we've got a few today. Members, have you introduced yourself and said hi and thank them for coming? That's really important that you do that. Visitors, if they didn't, let me know. and we'll, we'll, We're going to have a family meeting, all right? Just kidding. But, but seriously, we should be the type of church that, man, when you come in, you feel welcomed. You feel loved. Why? Because what did God do when we were strangers? He pursued us. You see how this is connected to the gospel? God didn't wait for us to find him. No, 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 because we were stumbling around in the dark in our sin. He pursued us and made us his own. And so we want to reflect that in the congregation um, of our church. Finally, this love is expressed in remembering those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Now, we obviously don't have this specific challenge yet in our church. I say yet because it, it could happen. And we want to stay truthful to the gospel. They'll probably go after me first. So it'd be awesome if you remember me if I'm ever in prison for preaching the truth. Um, and so obviously we don't have these, these, these issues yet. But we do have people in our church that they don't have a Christian family. They don't have a Christian background. It's difficult for them to stand up for Jesus, to live for the Lord, to, to stay committed to this church. And it would be awesome if we'd be a church that helped those who are in difficult situations. It may not be prison, but whatever it is, we should be those who come alongside those who are struggling and help them navigate the unique difficulties that come from following Jesus. And I'm reminded in this text of the text where Jesus says, when you serve the least of these, you're serving me. And so you're like, yeah, I don't really like that person. So I'm not going to, well, just think as you serve that person, you're actually serving King Jesus and who wouldn't want to serve him. And so we serve, we love others, we pursue love in our church. As we wrap up this, this first point, I just want to ask you a few questions. When people think about you, what comes to mind? That's convicting. What are you known for? Because over and over again in the scriptures, we're told that Christians ought to be known for love. This isn't wishy-washy love that just embraces everything. This is love in, in truth still. 
And by the way, sometimes the loving thing to do is to tell the truth every time. That's the loving thing to do. But this is love. Overall, you're marked by love. So is your life marked by love for God and others? When people think about you, do they think about someone who loves God and neighbor? How do you treat your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, waitresses at the restaurant, strangers you come in contact with? This is no doubt a challenging thing for us. And maybe every single day, maybe we wake up and we just pray this, Lord, help me to be marked by love for God and others today. You cannot go wrong with a prayer like that every single day of your life because that's what Jesus emphasized. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what a new covenant community should be marked by. They should be those who pursue love. The next two commands are found in verses four through six and they target two specific sins. And if we didn't look at it ahead of time and we just guessed, you could probably guess what the sins are. Of course, he, he tackles the big ones, sex and money, okay? And so the way I've summarized this, this passage this way is abstain from sin. Abstain from sin. This is just another reminder that at our church, we just go through books of the Bible and sometimes we bump into stuff that isn't really necessarily fun to talk about, but we just, we just hit it because it's right there in the text. And so, so we're gonna tackle it today. In verse four, he starts with sexual immorality. He says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the second time now in two chapters that the author brings up sexual immorality. Well, why? Why is he just like want to attack this specific sin? What's the deal here? Well, again, remember the church is meant to be a display of God's glory. And since God is the essence of purity, a church should be marked by purity. A church that fails to meet this area fails to display God rightly. So Christians should be relentless in their pursuit of holiness. They should honor the sacred union of marriage between a man and a woman, and they should abstain from any type of sexual conduct that's outside the covenant of marriage. This command is even weightier when we consider the fact that in the scriptures, marriage is meant to point to something beyond itself. So a marriage is not a wall, a marriage is a window, and you should see through a good marriage, and you should see a dimly lit picture of Christ's love for the church. Listen to what Paul says about marriage in, in Ephesians 5. He gives all these instructions about marriage, and then he says this, this mystery is profound. Paul's like, I, I mean, I'm an apostle, but I don't fully understand. This is profound. But what I'm saying is that this refers to Christ and the church. Husbands, the call to sacrificially love your wife is a call to preach the gospel. You understand that? It's more than just, oh, I better be a good husband. No, no, no. This is a weighty, awesome calling from God himself to, to show, and the way you love that woman, to show a little picture of how Jesus loved his people when he came and died for their sins. What a calling. What a weighty calling. And wives, the, the call to confidently submit to your husband is a call to preach the gospel. It's this divine dance that together you display the glory of Jesus to the world around you. And the way that looks, we don't have time to get into the workings of that, but, but the scriptures are very clear that marriage is to be held in honor ultimately because it's a picture of Christ's covenant love for his people. And so your marriage is bigger than just your marriage. And in a church, marriage should be held in honor because the gospel is at stake. And a church should be pure because God is pure. We want the character of our congregation and of our lives to reflect the character of our God. And by the way, if this is a sin that you happen to be struggling with and you need some help, reach out. Sin loves to fester and grow in the dark. 
But if you bring that out into the light with another brother or another sister in Christ, and you put that sin to death by the Spirit, you can have victory. Listen, Christ has made a way. He has opened the jail cell, and we can walk out, but so often we let our sin confine us, and we sit there in the jail with the door wide open. And so be free today if you're struggling with this. The next sin specifically highlighted here is the love of money. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? By the way, that verse, that's a weapon that you should just memorize and just preach to yourself. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What an awesome verse. When we consider the background of this, this passage and these Christians, it's no doubt that many of them, if you remember, some of them were being persecuted, some of them having their property plundered, some of them were thrown in prison. And so it would be tempting for these Christians to kind of look to their money or their resources as a sense of security during this tumultuous time, right? Like they would look to that, that money and think, okay, I can be stable because I'm looking to money. What he's trying to say is don't put your hope, your happiness, or your significance in money. Don't anchor your, your trust in that stuff because it's fleeting. And it can, it's so quickly, it can become this idol. And, and whenever we try to make a gift from God do what the giver was meant to do, it always turns on us and it never meets the expectations that we thought. And so if money is your God and you're pursuing money as your God, it will never satisfy you. And so what he's saying here is don't look to money for your hope, for your stability in these tumultuous times. Instead, look to God. He reminds them of what God promises all throughout the Bible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He just, he promised that to Joshua as he was, he's entering this land. He's taking on the cloak that, that Moses had. He's about to go across the Jordan. He's got this big thing in front of him. And, and God says, be strong and be courageous. Why? Because you're awesome? No, 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 Josh. I know you're small, but I'm with you. I'm with you. The God who spoke all this into existence, I'm with you. And so you don't need to fear. He also quotes Psalm 118.6 to show that God is on our side and we do not need to fear anyone or anything. If God is for us, who can be against us? In short, the fear of the Lord drowns out all other fears. One of my commentaries summarized this section this way. The antidote to love of money is contentment. Right? Because he says, be content. Instead of pursuing this money that will, will never actually satisfy you, will never actually give you the stability you want. Instead, be content with what God has given you. And this brings us back to last week and the idea that Christians should be marked by thanksgiving. It's hard to be greedy for more money when we're overwhelmed with thankfulness by God's current provision in our lives. So our author highlights sexual sin and the love of money here. And if you think about it, this covers a lot. Can you imagine if these two sins alone were removed from our world? It would be a radically different place. I like how Dennis Johnson summarizes this passage. He says this, Sex and money are perennial human issues. And with both, the author orients our hearts toward God, who designed our sexual drives to be fulfilled in marriage, and who jealously woos our anxious hearts away from an adulterous affair with silver. In doing so, God makes good his promise never to leave us, a promise that silver cannot keep. Isn't that awesome? That was just good enough to share. So these sins are prominent for a reason. They cover a massive amount of evil in the world. But as we apply this section, remember the why behind all of this. We abstain from sin. We're, we're pure. We're holy. Why? Because God is holy. 
And so if you're sitting there, you're like, man, I'm doing pretty good in these areas. So I could just not listen during this part, maybe scroll on Facebook or, you know, count the tiles, whatever, right? Like if you're, if you're like, if you're, you know, sidetracked, still apply this to your life and say, am I marked by purity? Am I marked by holiness? Just like I should be marked by love. Am I marked by someone who puts sin to death? Who is at war with the things God is at war with? Are you marked by holiness or are you marked by pride, anger, bitterness, laziness, resentment? If we apply the whole letter here, we're reminded again that that sin, it offers fleeting, temporary pleasures. And so what do we do as Christians? We fight pleasure with pleasure. And we pursue a greater pleasure in Christ, pleasure forevermore. And so let's be a church that abstains from sin so that we can be a dimly lit picture of our holy God in the dark world that we live in. So far, we've seen that churches should pursue love and abstain from sin. In the last two verses we'll cover today, he's going to shift to the area of leadership and discipleship. And I've summarized these verses this way. Remember your leaders in verses 7 through 8. Verse 7, he says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Which, by the way, that's a great little definition of what a leader in a church ought to do. Preach the word of God. Do not get up here and give your opinions or your tips for a happy life. Preach the word of God. People are hungry for the word of God. And you're like, you're, you're preaching at us. Like, you're the preacher. I know, but it's frustrating when I hear preachers and they don't preach the word of God, okay? Anyways, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, there's some debate about verse 7. Some scholars think he's referring to their current pastors and elders who are overseeing them because he mentions them again in verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. And we'll, we'll cover that one later. But others think that he's referring to pastors who have already finished their pilgrimage here on earth. They've already died. And what he's saying here is he's, he thinks there might be a little bit of tension in this leadership transition that's going on. And that's why he says, remember your leaders, but then later he says, obey your current leaders. So, so there, there seems to be maybe an a unhealthy embrace of the, the current leaders at the time is what some scholars think. It's, it's back and forth on that. I lean towards the second group that they are the past leaders. And, and here's why. He says those who spoke the word. He, he seems to talk about them in a past tense. Then he also says consider the outcome of their life. In other words, look at how their lives turned out. And imitate their faith. And so what he's doing is he's putting their, their older pastors and leaders who have finished the race or maybe honestly been thrown in prison or, or killed or whatever may have happened to them. Um, and he's saying, consider their way of life, imitate their faith. But listen, whether it's past or present, the application is the same. God gives all of us pastors and leaders and, and, and those who are further on the path in the Christian life to look at, to consider the outcome of their faith and to imitate it. For our good, we are to look to pastors God has given us past and present and consider their way of life. Now, as a side note, this is obviously a challenge for for me, right? For pastors. Um, First of all, that I should preach God's word. I already kind of went off on that little tangent. But but secondly, that I should be someone that lives the type of life that is worth emulating. I heard this quote when we first started this church here, and it's really stuck with me ever since. They said, Pastor, if everyone in your church lived like you live, what would your church look like? And that's something that I ask myself a lot. And I pray and I say, God, I need help if I am to be someone who lives this type of life. And so 
Listen, what he's saying here is you should have a pastor that emulates it. And, and so I have to preach it. It's in the text. And so I'm kind of preaching it myself. But if you ever see something in me that isn't worth emulating, bring it to my attention. Listen, I, I'm not going to be perfect, but you should be able to look at how I pray, how I read my Bible, how I worship, how I love my wife, how I steward my finances, how I spend my time, how I repent when I am confronted. You should be able to look at that and see something worth emulating, not perfection, but something worth imitating. That's what leaders are supposed to be. That being said, though, I love this. He says you shouldn't ultimately put your hope in me or any earthly leader. Where does he go directly next? And we often take this verse and we kind of apply it out of context. But in context, it's so much better. Because if it's true that they're leaders who maybe they looked up to, who they thought were so great. If it's true that they died and they're in this shaky time and they've got these new leaders that they're not so sure of. And, but he anchors all of this where? In Jesus Christ. The founder and perfecter of their faith. The one who is perfect. The one who never fails. The one who never changes. And unlike me or any other pastor, he is perfect and unchanging. And in a world where everything is changing almost daily sometimes. How encouraging is it that Jesus Christ never changes? That we can look to him as a steady rock for our lives. And know that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the eternal and unchangeable God, immutable, unable to change the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we apply this section, it reminds me of the fact that we are dynamic beings that are constantly being influenced by the world around us, which is why he points them to a healthy thing to be influenced by, right? Remember your leaders. Don't look around at people who aren't following Jesus for imitation. Look to your leaders. And my professor um, recently illustrated this with the nursery. If you've ever watched a group of kids in a nursery, it's like they're all playing with a toy and maybe there's like this rusty old toy in the corner that none of them want. But then one little toddler gets curious, kind of wanders over there and starts playing with it. And suddenly all the kids want to play with that toy, right? And, and it's like world war breaks out. Everybody wants that rusty old toy that nobody wanted. Why is that? Because we imitate people around us. They shape our values, they shape our desires, they shape our commitments, they shape the way we think. We, we, we are influencing beings and we are influenced beings. We need to know that about ourselves because the people around us will shape us. One guy put it this way, it may be a slight overstatement, but he said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yikes. Like some of you are like, man, I got to delete some friends, right? <laughs> like, I, don't know. I don't know if that's true, right? But, but he's saying, like, you're influenced by the people you spend time with. Some of you are like, that's my family. Man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean. Andrew Fuller, an 18th century Baptist preacher, he put it with a little more nuance. This I can kind of get behind a little bit more with a little more biblical weight. He says this, the company we keep and the books we read insensibly, that's an old word that just means without us realizing it, insensibly form us into the same likeness. Now, some of you are like, oh, I don't hang out with anybody. I'm an introvert and I don't read books, so I'm good, <laughs> right? But, but listen, first of all, you should read books, okay? But, but secondly, secondly, this was said before social media, internet, podcasts, and all the things we have today. And so you need to understand this today. This is really scary to think about. The company you keep, including your friends on Facebook, the movies you watch, the social media you participate in, the music you listen to insensibly without you realizing it is shaping you and forming you into its same likeness. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure we're in the word of God. The way I say it is every single day, I want to wash my brain in God's word. I need a shower. 
Because, because we're just constantly being formed and discipled and shaped in the world around us without us recognizing it. And some of you maybe are in maybe toxic work cultures and you can't help that. You're around just a, a bad group, okay? That might just be the reality. And so you need more time with Jesus and more time in his word and, and more time in church. Because we're constantly being shaped and formed by the world around us. And the way we combat that is by looking to the scriptures, looking to Jesus ultimately, but then finding some people like leaders who are, who are living the word of God and, and imitate their faith. How do they spend their time? How do they read their Bible? How do they pray? And, and get someone in your life that you can look to and get some help. That's what, that's what he's doing here. He's reminding them to look to their leaders, which is why I always say, if you want to get together, Shane and I can grab dinner and we can help you with this. Like we're not perfect, but we, we read our Bible and we pray and we try to spend our time a certain way. And so, so if you need some help with this, then reach out to us. We'd love to help you. This is why Paul said this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Wow. That's, that's, I need to be able to say that as a pastor. But, but he recognized there that humans tend to mimic those around them. They tend to be influenced by their surroundings. And so we need to look to our leaders who taught us the word of God, but ultimately to Jesus Christ who never changes. The eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, unchangeable God and Savior of the world. Jesus is just awesome. As we wind things down, I want to remind you of the why again. We looked at it in the introduction, but we need to remember this again. Ultimately, we live these lives that are set apart to reflect the character of God to a watching world. Peter put it this way in his epistle. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I talk about this a lot, but holiness gets a bad rap in our culture. It's like the broccoli of dinner, like when you're a kid, you just don't want to eat it. Ah, but holiness. But think of holiness as wholeness. Think of it as stepping into what you were created and designed to be. Think of it as beauty and majesty. That's holiness. It's being like our great God and Savior. We pursue love. Why? Because God is love. That's why. We, we abstain from sin. Why? Because God is pure. We want to reflect his holy character to the world. We follow Jesus because he's the image of the invisible God, the perfection of God's glory. So as we close today, I want to leave you with this. Let's display God's glory in the lives that we live. It's pretty simple, but very difficult to live out. And we desperately need God's help to do it. To put it another way, let's be holy because God is holy. Let's reflect the character of our God by the character of our congregation. And remember, we are members of Christ's body, but that membership is made up of individual members. And so let me make this really personal for a second. Are you marked by love and holiness? Does your life reflect the character of God that you claim to love and serve? Do you abstain from sinful attitudes and actions? Are you seeking to follow Jesus? Does your life reflect the character of God? And does our church as a whole reflect the character of God? Together and as individuals, let's be an image of the invisible God to the world around us. In the way we love, in the way we fight sin, in the way we imitate Jesus and those who've gone before us. Let's display God's glory in the lives that we live.